Reading from the Gospel of John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. So for this third Sunday in Advent, we... um, We've been walking through a series looking at the four, what we call the four names of Christmas from Isaiah 9, 6. And so the passage that was just read is one we're going to come back to in a few minutes to help us go deeper into one of these names. But the name we're going to be investigating together during the sermon teaching time is the name Everlasting Father. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, as we've learned already, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, this morning, Everlasting Father, next week, Prince of Peace. So this morning we'll investigate the name of God as Everlasting Father, the name of Christmas, Everlasting Father. The one that we've prayed to already this morning by name as our Father who art in heaven. He is our everlasting Father. So I just, I invite you to sit with me in a place of reflection for the next little bit and invite the Holy Spirit to to teach us together, to speak to you uniquely whatever you've gone through in your week or in your life. That maybe, maybe this morning the everlasting Father will become even more real to you today. So to begin, I want to give you a description, and I want to see if you can guess who or what this is. So quiz time. Here we go. He's lived through both world wars, seven British monarchs, 39 U.S. presidents, and is older than the Eiffel Tower. And now... This fill-in-the-blank is celebrating another year around the sun as he turns 190 years old. This person, or not person, take that out. This, This blank has lived through some of humanity's biggest milestones. The first telephone call in 1876, the Wright brothers' first power-driven flight in 1903, and the first people to walk on the moon in 1969. And it has, uh, has really the, the same interest all throughout this, this thing's life. Sleeping, eating, and mating. Those are the three primary things this thing does. Anybody have any guesses? Its name is Jonathan, and it's the world's oldest land animal, a tortoise. 190 years old and still kicking. 190 years old. Pretty amazing. 
Uh, it's amazing to think what that tortoise has seen in its life. I mean, it probably hasn't really seen much of it. I don't think it watches TV or listens to the radio or travels much. Probably just sees the same little plot of grass. But 190 years old is nothing to sneeze at. It's pretty amazing. And so as I was thinking about you know, God being everlasting this morning, you know, Jonathan the tortoise is about as everlasting as any of us know in terms of something that's still alive today. Um, Jesus is our everlasting father, according to Isaiah 9, 6. Remember, it says, for to us, a child is born. And so the child that we celebrate at Christmas, at the birth of Jesus, he's the child. And yet at the same time, he's called everlasting father. So this morning, we're gonna, our mind is going to get to a little bit of a pretzel place. Jesus was a real child born into real time, into real space. He lived a life with a limited amount of days, just like you and me, unlike Jonathan the tortoise, clearly. He kind of lives a long time. Jesus lived a a finite amount of time, 33 years. But that same child that is born also then is a verse later called the everlasting father, meaning that he lives forever. He has no expiration date of time when he will cease to be or cease to work. Unlike gallons of milk or batteries, God does not expire. God does not run out. And unlike us, each of us run out of time. We run out of energy. We have to go to sleep at night. We have limited perspective of what's going on in the world. We are tired and weary, and one day all of us will die. We are not everlasting. And so the conclusion from that point already is that we need, as limited, finite people, we need someone outside of us and not bound by the same limits that you and I have. We need the everlasting one to sustain us. And yet it also says that Jesus is the one described as to us a son is given in Isaiah 9, 6. So he was a son, meaning that he was a biological male born to a real father and mother, Mary the virgin, Joseph the carpenter from uh, Israel, and had a real Jewish family coming from a real family that came from the tribe of Judah that dates back centuries. He was begotten of God, being God's son is what the Bible describes him as. So again, he's a son, S-O-N. But the next verse also tells us that he's a father, a son that has now become a father or who has always been father. He's the everlasting father. So he's not like Stephen, who was once son of Morris and Elaine and now is father to Eleanor and Clara. Jesus is not a son that becomes a father. Jesus is the son that always has been the father. Mental pretzel, right? Meaning that he is our loving caretaker, our provider, our teacher. All the things that make the best possible father, Jesus is those things. Which is so unlike the experience that so many in our world have today. Many of us in the world, uh, so many in the world, have had poor father uh, experiences. Let me just give you a few statistics of um, not even not even just poor fathers, but let's just talk about the absence of fathers in the world today. 
Across America, there are approximately 18.3 million children who live with zero father in their home, which is one out of every four children. And so the United States has the highest rate of children living in single parent households of any nation in the world. 80% of single parent homes are led by single mothers. Um, 20, a rate of 23% of children living with one parent and no other adults. The United States stands over three times the world average of 7% of children raised by one parent. For reference, the number stands at 3% for China, 4% for India. Conclusion of that point, we need a father. Whether you've had a good father experience, whether you've had a terrible father experience, whether you've had an absent father experience, we need a father. We need the heavenly father. And so today, we need to answer the question, what does it mean that Jesus can be our everlasting father? And that's why we go to the passage that Aidan read this morning from John 17. So I invite you to, to turn there or to find it in your bulletin or follow on the screen. Um, it's before Jesus goes to the cross. And John 17 is what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And so the words that you heard read earlier and that you'll see in your Bible in John 17 are a prayer between Jesus and the Heavenly Father. He's not talking to people. He's talking to, to the Father in heaven. And it's a prayer specifically for us. He's praying for the world. He's praying for his followers. He's praying for those who will come after him. Prayers to God the Father in heaven. In order to understand how Jesus the Son can also be God, the everlasting Father, we need to understand how Jesus understood his relationship to the Father. And so that's why we're going here, because we get an interesting five verses to understand just a bit about how Jesus understands his relationship to God and to the Father. So how does Jesus understand himself? Um, in, in chapter 16 of John, it, it, the, the, the disciples are kind of in that mental pretzel place as well, too. They're they're a little confused about what Jesus is trying to teach them. And so they, they basically, in, in chapter 16, say, Jesus, can you speak a little bit more plainly to us? And so Jesus begins to explain some things. And then finally, in, in chapter 16, verse 25, uh, where is it? Here it says, he says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So then a couple of verses later, after describing how Jesus said, I came from the Father and I have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father, his disciples say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. It's like, thank you. It's starting to make a little bit more sense now. The disciples are beginning to understand that Jesus and the Father are one. And we're going to get to that point in a little bit later. But then the last thing Jesus says before chapter 17 begins, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So he says, the, com the complexity of me and the Father being one is not meant to bring you anxiety. It's actually meant to bring you peace. 
And so that's my prayer for us this morning as we investigate this a little bit. So I'm mostly interested this morning in not so much like analyzing what does it mean that God is forever? What does it mean that God is our father? Like, I think we can kind of understand the the images there. God is forever. God is our loving caretaker who's with us in our deepest needs of every kind, like a true father is. What I'm mostly interested in for us is what, what does it mean for us that God is our everlasting father? How does this impact our day to day living? the way we go about our jobs, the way we interact with our family members, the way we interact with the world. Why does everlasting father matter to us? Why is it good that God is our everlasting father? So let me give you a couple of, couple of answers from this text. In verse one, it says, when Jesus had said these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I think the first point I'd like to tell you is because Jesus is our everlasting father, it means that we can see clearly what a real relationship with God is like. Jesus helps us see what a real relationship with God is like, a real father, son, God, man relationship. He shows us what it's supposed to look like so that you and I can imitate him and follow after him. And so a relationship with the father is one, is a relationship where we know that God truly and deeply loves us and we live deeply into that fatherly love. So first it says, Jesus looks to God, just like we do. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. You know, so I think this is just a, it's a small point, but it's a good one to make for us that when you and I go looking for God, where do you go? You, you look to heaven, you look to outside of time, you look, to, you look up, you look to someone who is, who is apart from our existence, who's in a, in a space different than us. For ultimate need and help in life, we look to the same place that Jesus did, which is, it says, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus prayed. Do you, I mean, Jesus is God, but he prayed to the Father just like you and I did moments ago in our time of prayer. We lift our our spiritual eyes to heaven and we pray to him. Jesus relates to God as the one outside of time and space, just like we do. He sees that God is above all and has greater perspective than all of us. And so he prays to God in heaven, knowing that God can see how all things are working out. You know, and Jesus didn't have like a special password to get to God quicker than us. It's not like he had like a a secret handshake or a secret code word to say like, okay, now I'm gonna get God's attention better because I'm his son. No, he he prays to father in heaven. He lifted up his eyes and he looked to heaven. He knew where to find God, just like you and I know where to find God. He can come directly to God, just like a child comes to a father's bedroom in the middle of the night to wake him up because they need something even for something as simple as a glass of water. That's why Jesus came to the Father with that kind of request from little to big. It also says here that, that, like I said briefly a second ago, Jesus speaks to God with with the name Father, the same way that we pray our Father in heaven. He calls God by his, by the most intimate family name possible. So in Greek and in Hebrew, 
the, the word here, father, is Abba, which is kind of the, the way a child would speak to their, to their daddy. And so Jesus is using this most intimate, childlike name for God because that's how he relates to him. He doesn't relate to him as almighty one or all hail king of the universe. I mean, there, there is a reverence there at other places in scripture for sure. But on a relationship level, God is speaking, Jesus is speaking to God as his, as his papa, as his daddy, as, his, as his, the one he can go and, and say, I need fatherly help here. Jesus knows this is how God truly is, a father to his children. And you can know God as a father and speak to him with such love and need and dependence, just like a child speaks to a trusted father. And again, I know like in some sense, maybe this is evoking like a pain or a, a loss of something maybe you didn't experience as a child because there's a large percentage of us that, that maybe didn't have a father to go to in this kind of intimate, childlike, trusting way. And so if that's your scenario, one, just acknowledge the pain, but also run to this father because he's sitting there waiting to fill in that void of maybe something you didn't have in your earthly father experience. A father is a father forever. And for any, any father that's abandoned their children or has run away or has left them behind, they may say, I'm not a father, I don't have any children, but deep down they know that they're a father. And God is that on the deepest level for us. God is our everlasting father. He always will be relating to us as in a child-father relationship. Finally, Jesus recognizes that God will not ask us to do anything that he won't also ask himself to do or that he wouldn't always do himself like a true father would. No, no good father would tell their child to do something that they wouldn't also willingly do themselves. And so when, when Jesus says, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. This is, do you see the mutual glory giving that's happening here? Jesus wishes to glorify God by laying down his life for the father to be the ultimate substitute on the cross just hours later. And this is what God then has done for you and me because when we see Jesus on the cross, we're not just seeing the son of God dying on the cross. We're actually seeing God himself in the fullness of flesh the father himself actually substituting himself for us in human form. Again, no, no true father would tell a son to do something they wouldn't do themselves. And that's the beautiful complexity of the cross is it's Jesus being the ransom and the substitute while also being God himself dying and laying down his life for us out of deep sacrifice a fatherly love beyond all compare. And then in turn, you and I then can have the strength to lay down our lives in love and sacrifice for one another, emulating and imitating God for the glory of God, mutual glory giving. So that's the first point. We can see what a real relationship with God is like, one of love and sacrifice and commitment and trust. Secondly, because Jesus is our everlasting father, look at verse two. It says here, this is Jesus speaking, since you, the father, have given him, 
Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Because Jesus is our everlasting father, we can see the true authority of God, which is an authority we can trust. There is a mutual trust of authority between God the Father and God the Son here, Jesus and the Father. Let me say that again. There's an authority that you can trust. Let me say that again. We're living in the year 2022. There is an authority that we can trust that is present for us. There is a massive amount of mistrust of authority in our current day. And it's, without going down the rabbit hole, there's, there's warrant for it. I mean, a lot of people that are in authority over us uh, have, have, have lost our trust for, for good reasons. And if nothing else, there's just a healthy amount of skepticism of authority these days. Politics, church leader scandals, corruption, I mean, there's just, there's examples that you could go on and on about. Particularly among the younger generations, there's just a, there's a, a look from the younger generation to authority figures saying, why should I trust you? What gives you, wh- why? What, 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 what about you makes me think I should trust in what you're saying to do? And here we see God as the one who has ultimate authority over all things, saying, I've given my authority to Jesus over all flesh so that he can give eternal life towards all that I've given to him. You see, when it says in Isaiah 9, 6, that God is everlasting, again, we've said that means forever, obviously. But that, let me just go down this trail for a second. To mean that God is forever means, to say that God is forever means that God was reigning from the beginning. He doesn't need to worry about fixing the problem of someone that came before him or someone that was ruling inconsistently before him. He doesn't have to worry about like his plan, you know, meshing with something that came before him. He's been working out his plan, his perfect plan from the beginning with precision of detail. It also means that God is reigning now, unrivaled. He has no need to guard him from intruding on other people's reign. Like there's not like a competitive king that he needs to like be worried that they're going to come and invade his kingdom. He's over all of them today, unrivaled. He has no anxiety about his kingdom, you know, coming under threat from the outside, meaning that there's no, there's no real war that's ever going to happen with God. He's unrivaled reigning today. And it also means that he will be reigning at the end of all time. So he has no anxiety about like how to pass off his agenda or his plan to the next person. There's no need for succession planning in God's authority. So the city of Salem right now, where our mayor is transitioning, there's a transition plan that's going to be a little challenging. Just like when a president gets Elected, and there's, they're replacing another president. There's a passing off of a plan or an agenda or changing things. And there's all this anxiety. And it, that's hard to deal with. And God doesn't have to deal with any of that. Nor does he have to waste his time campaigning for the next election. Because there's no election. It's not a democracy. God is the one ultimate authority. He does not die. He will live and reign forever. 
And that should bring us a great comfort because it means that we can either choose to trust that God and live in step with his perfect, precise, precision plan, or we can, we can butt up against it and just always be at strife with it. But there's no one coming after him. There's no one coming before him. He is the authority. God is not bound by the limits of time at all. I, I went down a nice little rabbit hole this week of looking at the different uh, durations of world leaders. Just trying to get a perspective. Okay, if God is the everlasting one who is reigning as king forever, reigning as our compassionate father forever, how does that compare with how we experience authority figures in our life? And I went down this, this list of, I found the longest reigning monarch or emperor in the history of, of the recorded world. The longest reigning emperor. Do you know how long it was? Pretty long time. 82 years. It was by Subhuza II of Swaziland. I'd never heard of him, but he reigned for 82 years. That's the longest in recorded history. You know the shortest one that I could find? 20 minutes. <laughs> Louis IX, King of France, on August the 2nd, 1830, uh, was king for 20 minutes before he was forced to abdicate. And it's actually, he's tied with Louis II, King of Portugal, who on February the 1st, 1908, was murdered 20 minutes after his father was murdered. In general, kings and queens and rulers reign a very short relative amount of time. But God reigns forever as everlasting. Psalm 90 says, before the mountains were brought forth or before you ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And this, this should put us at ease in terms of, is there someone we can trust in authority? If there's anyone I would trust in authority, it's the one who's been reigning the longest and the one who's going to reign forever. And God has delegated that eternal authority, authority to Jesus. It's God-given. Jesus is perfectly in line in action with the Father. He's perfectly obedient with him. John 17 and John 10, Jesus states explicitly, I and the Father are one, meaning that they share not only the same action plan and agenda, but they are the same in intention, the same in motivation, the same in essence. This is where the Trinity just comes crashing into the, to the Christmas story. It's not just about a baby being born. It's about the fullness and the beauty of God being shown to us in, thing, in practical things like, who do I trust? Who do I trust that's in authority over me? Jesus's authority is over all flesh. And it's for the purpose of giving eternal life to all that God has given him. God's everlasting life is meant to be given away to every person. And you see here that Jesus is 100% effective in bringing to salvation those whom the father has given to him. And so lastly, the last point about what we can see about why the everlasting father matters to us today is that we can see the true purposes of God lived out for us. How Jesus relates to the father shows us how the purposes of God work out, not just for his life, but for our life today as well. 
And the purpose of, of your life through the lens of Jesus is to have the presence of God living and reigning in your life day to day and to recognize his presence with you wherever you go. Think about Jesus's last words in the Great Commission. So he told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Verses three through five, Jesus tells us what eternal life is. You know, maybe we think of eternal life as praying the sinner's prayer or being a good person or dying and going to heaven. All those things are part of eternal life. All those things are part of the life that God gives us. But if you had to really boil it down, what Jesus says is this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then it goes on to say, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Wait, what? Jesus had glory with God before the world existed? That's right. Jesus was with God in the very beginning. Jesus was part of creating this whole thing. And Jesus was part of saving this whole thing. And Jesus is going to be part of remaking this whole thing in a new heaven and a new earth. God's life is meant for everyone. He does not hold back life from you or anyone else. His life is meant to flow to us just like water flows down and reaches the lowest place. We're going to sing that exact lyric at the song in just a moment. His grace shall flow to us forever just as his love flows to the lowest place, like a river reaches the lowest place. When we are in those lowest places, that's where his grace flows the fastest and the hardest. The purpose of your life is presence with God, to know God and Jesus, not just intellectually, not just knowing about Jesus or God, but knowing him in your heart, being captivated by the wonderful work of Jesus on the cross, his love poured out for you and me and having that close relationship with him. Let me close with a story. Um, I'll do another ancient Greek myth for you since I did Hercules last week. I'll give you another one this week to close with. Um, has, has anybody ever heard of the, um, the phrase uh, narcissist? Anybody, anybody ever investigated where that came from? There was a guy in ancient mythology named Narciss, Narcissus. And in an ancient myth recorded uh, by this guy named Ovid, uh, he describes the story of Narcissus. He says, after an encounter with Echo, this person, Narciss uh, fled to a river where he knelt down to drink. However, as he was about to drink, he caught sight of his reflection in the water and fell in love. He fell in love with what he saw in that reflection. Wow. Narcissus, you are beautiful. And whenever he tried to drink from the river, the reflection was disturbed. It would shake. So Narcissus refused to drink from the river, instead choosing to gaze longingly at his reflection until he died of thirst. What a story of futility. 
May we never be like that ourselves, where our life gets so fixated on ourselves that we die of thirst of what the Bible would describe as living water being offered to each of us. Jesus came to give living water to each of us, living water of eternal life. Not by looking at ourselves for that, not by looking for some self-enlightenment, but by looking to the everlasting Father who has the deepest wellspring of life for us. So look for the heavenly Father who's waiting for you and waiting for us. So we're gonna sing what I think is just a beautiful song called The Everlasting Love of God um, at, the, at the serving of communion in just a moment. I really encourage um, to thoughtfully reflect on the lyrics that are gonna be sung. They'll be on the screen and in your bulletin. Um, but just a beautiful image of the Father's great love for us. And we're gonna be serving uh, the Lord's Supper to you as well to conclude our service. Um, and so as always, as we transition to the Lord's Supper, the invitation is open for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus to receive this meal as a signifier of a relationship that you have with him, to take and eat the meal that he's offering to you. And so if you wanna make that decision at this very moment to put your faith in Christ, simply pray to the Father and say, Father, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of grace and forgiveness and I wanna give my life to you. I wanna make this a spiritual turning point in my life now and receive salvation this very moment and take the Lord's Supper with us. May that begin a beautiful journey in your life. If you've already made that decision, please use this as a moment to thoughtfully reflect on your own sin and the Father's great love for you that was poured out for you on the cross. And use this as a special moment during this Advent season to reflect on the wonder that is God in the flesh coming to you. And so with that, um, that instruction and that, that encouragement to you, I'll invite the deaconesses to, um, to ready themselves to serve the meal. And uh, Javier and Sydney, if you'd come lead us in song. So as you receive the meal, uh, just hold on to the elements. We'll take it all together at the conclusion of the song. <laughs>